think you have to, your lawyers have to accept that. <laughs> right. Yeah. This is not the voice I expected. I did not expect your voice to sound like this. I've yeah, never, it doesn't always happen that way. Never heard your voice before. So, yeah, I guess I don't I haven't put that many videos up. Yeah, yeah. No, actually, maybe now that you said that, <laughs> now you sound as, <laughs> can you tell me something only, only Matthew Bartlett knows? Uh, no. No, I probably couldn't. <laughs> All right, I admit it. I'm the lawyer <clears throat> sitting in for part one. Oh, baby. I've got a baby in the room, so this might be a fiasco, but I think okay. might as well try it. Um, okay. So is it Matt, Matthew? How do you, what do you go by? Uh, Matt is fine. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So this whole, um, this whole thing was planned because we had a mutual hatred for some Netflix trash. Yes. And I tried to watch it again this morning. <laughs> I, I just couldn't do it. Yeah, I, I couldn't. I, I think it's a testament to how terrible it is that I wasn't even kidding. I could not remember what it was called. I couldn't remember the name of it. Neither could I. I kept uh, Googling uh, Julia Roberts, Ethan Hawke. And I'm like, oh, yeah. And then I instantly forget it again. Yeah, it's um, yeah. it's pretty bad. So I figure we'll... We might end up doing some uh, True Detective. Did you have a chance to watch that last night? True, oh, Detective. True Detective? Yeah. I did, yes. Oh, okay. I think I lost you there for a second. Don't worry. I, I edit all this stuff up so that it sounds like we're fast-talking geniuses. Okay. <laughs> I tighten up all the dead spots. But, I, you know, somebody said that the last episode, I did that too much. Uh-huh. And um, Amy was like, you were talking all over that guy. That was so excruciating to hear you just rolling over everything he was saying. And that was because he was pausing so much. I thought it would do us favors to bring it all in together. But it gives you that um, that DJ sort of overlapping talk. Where I, I don't know how they do that. They edit it so it sounds like the voice comes a little quicker than it should. Right. So I swear I'm not cutting people off that much. And when I edit this down, it's gonna it might sound like that, but that's just to, to get us down to that tight hour. But yeah, well, I should introduce you. I think the people that listen to this are kind of movie people from what I understand, but we got Matthew Bartlett, author of Gateways to Abomination was the big one. Now my my knowledge of your career is a little limited. You can maybe you can fill in these gaps. Oh, sure. Yeah, there was uh Gateways to Abomination um was my debut and that's probably still my bestseller. The one of mine that sells best, not a actual bestseller. But uh, then after that was uh, Creeping Waves, which was a kind of a sequel. And then there been a whole bunch of books after that, including um, the latest one, which um, is called The Obsecration. And that's kind of a, as close to a, a novel as I may ever get. That's the one um, that I was holding up. There's something about the colors on that that kind of make mm. me crazy. I don't know what it I don't know if it's that daylight horror theory, but something about the layout of that. I keep coming back to it. I haven't cracked it open yet, but I keep coming back to the cover of it at least. That's uh, the work of Michael uh, Bukowski, who did a great job. And yeah, he works in uh, unlikely horror palettes. You know, it's usually it's all everything's black and red, you know, which I'm fine with. Uh, it was good to have a little strange color in there. I think it highlights the the weird rather than rather than the uh, horror nature of it. Yeah. Something about that breakfast too, a little yeah. little nipple eggs. Yeah, um, I, as near as I understand, you got Leeds is kind of the home base. This this is the your arena, right? Yeah, it's a fictionalized uh, version of Northampton, Massachusetts. Um, 
okay. with the emphasis on yeah the weird history of uh you know the usual New England witchcraft horror so stuff. He, uh, so, yeah, gotcha. So when I was looking up your um, page and when I ordered this book, this Gare Occult. Now is that is that like an anagram or something or is that what is the? Gare? It's kind of like a um, like a fake uh, imprint, but it's named after a character in who recurs uh, throughout my stuff, whose name is Anne Gare, G-A-R-E, and owns a uh, a bookshop in Leeds that uh, has a lot of uh, grimoires and uh, strange forbidden oh, okay. tomes, uh, along probably with, you know, Shogun and other perennial bestsellers. Gotcha. She briefly appeared uh, in a story called The Investigator, uh, and, and it was kind of a wordless, a wordless appearance, but yeah, she okay. kind of hovers around the... The fringes of everything I write. Okay, okay, that's the one I read. I came to it kind of late, uh, but it, it definitely lived up to the hype. I uh, thoroughly enjoyed that. It was it was particularly deranged, which I'm trying to uh, I'm trying to reconcile with the your online life that I stalk <laughs> reasonably, and um, there's a depravity to it, but there's also I don't know. It's sort of exhilarating to read it. Near as I can tell, this I'm going to make a lot of assumptions about your life here. Please do. But so like my partner, Amy, says that she prides herself on getting me out of my comfort zone because I never want to do anything. I don't want to go for hikes. You know, I don't want to go out and hang out with people. And my resistance to that, where I just don't want to do anything, it leads me to believe that when, when I look at you, I think, is this somebody who gets to live that life? Because your life, you strike this, feel free to, to deny this. You strike me as someone <laughs> who, lives, who lives in a comfort zone. You quit your jobs at will. You, uh, your, your Pepper Palace adventures were was, was some good content. So that's <laughs> when I started tuning into your jobs. You seem to, you self-publish your book. You just kind of do your own thing. Is there, is there an attempt to be, I don't want to say off the grid because you're, your life is sort of transparent in a way, but are, is this is all of this inaccurate? Are you like some sort of hard nosed, career minded, like from Wall Street, <laughs> or are you really just are you just this guy who lives in a very comfortable place that that I'm sort of jealous of? Well, I mean, I worked steadily in full time jobs for as long as I can remember up until uh, I left my full time work in 2019. And after that, life has been different and a little closer to what you described. Um, I work a couple of part-time jobs, totaling not much more than 20 hours a week. And other than that, I uh, I, I write. Um, I have a subscription service of chat books that uh, subscri- subscribers, excuse me, get a monthly book uh, in the mail. So a lot of my time is taken up with that. Um, so you did kind of go full-time with your writing, like most people dream of. I did um, with the, yeah, the the help of that um, chapbook subscription, which I don't think I <laughs> I don't think I would have lasted this long if I didn't have that. Um, but it, you know, it's income comes from that. It comes in from Amazon. It comes in from uh, Patreon. It comes in from selling books on my website and Audible. And, you know, so it's all this. You know, and just just sort of hope, fingers crossed, each year that uh, enough of it comes in to to keep this uh, bizarre life up uh, until such time as I might actually have to go back to uh, full-time work, right. which 
yeah, I guess that's, is possible. There was a line in, um, I, I don't remember what it, what movie it was, but it something to the effect of money stolen is twice as sweet as money earned or something. <laughs> the moments that you kind of described there as far as getting a stack of books together, taking them to the post office and mailing them out. Whenever I get to do that, I feel a real charge. Like it feels really good to just make, you know, that 50 bucks selling a couple books like that and sending them to the post office. So again, it, it sounds like a great, if you can keep those balls in the air, it sounds like a great place to, to be in that liminal space between, you know, doing what you have to do and doing what you want to do, I guess. Yeah. You know, it's, um, it, it looks great. I'm sure from, from, uh, from afar, it's got its own, uh, anxieties and, um, you know, worrying about this and that, you know, retirement, all that stuff. But, um, oh yeah, but this, the world's going down. <laughs> I know. That's, that's, don't have to worry about that anymore. That's the optimistic view that I take, which is that uh, <laughs> I'm just riding out like the, the end of the democracy and, uh, the, the downfall of everything. Um, uh, who needs to be bogged down with full-time work when all that's going on. Um, yeah, you know, it's, uh, it seems like you're, um, because there's so much success with the when you did the self-publishing and it's moved kind of into more traditional publishing and then it kind of circled back, it sounds like. Does, yeah. does that mean that you find that you're, um, is there a burden to be part of a writing community and not be able to go dark? Do you, do you find yourself a pressure to be kind of out there in the horror community or anything? No, uh, I guess I don't. Um, I like, I've kind of got, I think everyone sort of in this, who's doing this stuff has like their little almost kind of click. Um, and I have mine, the the people who kind of shared my stuff and talked about it when it first started coming out and, you know, uh, invited me to conventions and things like that. Um, I like all that stuff. I don't feel too much pressure to do it. Um, I like kind of being ridiculous online and knowing that in a way it might actually help my, uh, help sell books, you know? Right. Uh, and it's certainly not cynically done or forced or anything like that. But no, I, I, I enjoy it. If there is occasionally the kind of regret where like when Gateways to Abomination first came out, the only thing on the back cover was like a big black and white creepy picture of me and there's no information. So there was a, a little mysteriousness there that would have been fun to to, you know, kind of create this persona right. of a reclusive lunatic or something <laughs> right. and Didn't, wasn't there, and there, a toy? there were somebody made a toy yeah. of you or something yeah <laughs> but yeah no there were there were people who i spoke with on the phone not long after i started this who was who were surprised i wasn't a raving drooling you know lunatic on the phone um so it would have been it would have been fun to have like a weird sort of reclusive persona but then that's not really my thing as you can tell from my social media which is pretty goofy and and out there and open yeah yeah there's uh handing the child a flute see what happens here um <laughs> i can see that where the the freedom to be goofy online kind of dovetails with a community the way you describe the different clicks and different factions um it, it seems like it goes through phases right now where we seem to be in a, a very aggressively positive phase of writing communities where I see more than I'd say about a half dozen people have like boldly declared they would no longer be posting negative reviews of things. <laughs> it's just the oddest thing to see. I, I mean, I kind of get it where if you, 
if you naturally gravitate towards, if your friends are writers and you, you know, you might be less apt to be real critical of friends and you're reading their books and their books might be real, actually legitimately good, but it doesn't, it doesn't strike me as that so much anymore. It feels kind of like a clandestine way to network, like an admission that the only books being reviewed are to boost their own signal or something and, or get a link back to your own work would probably require some more positivity and that whole review up and punch down thing. Do you, do you find yourself noticing those things or being letting it? Yeah. I watch all all this stuff going on and try to stay out of it as much as possible. I don't review uh, the work of people who I know or who are in the community publicly um, because if there is something I don't like, I would, my silence might be conspicuous, you know, so I don't yeah. sort of review or talk about anything, but yeah, there's definitely like a marketing aspect if people are only reviewing um, what they see as positive and hoping to kind of get on the radar with that. And it might just be the, what we see too, like the way you just described it. Let's say you review a dozen books and then, then you think, well, I, I kind of don't want to even review this one because I didn't like it. So yeah. then organically, it seems like you're, too positive when actually you're probably just your excitement pushes you to leave that it's like the opposite of yelp reviews everyone leaves a negative review when they're mad um or it seems like more people do where with books they leave a good review when they're excited right Um, right or yeah i think you're right that sounds accurate to me that's something i was noticing lately just people saying well this is what i'm gonna be doing now i'm only reviewing books i like or i'm only no more negativity and i don't know i find the the resistance to negativity very negative I have to, I <laughs> yeah I, I guess i do too that's why i just i don't review anything because i know i have a capacity to be very negative and i just keep that between friendly conversations <laughs> right <know>? gotta figure <laughs> that shit um but yeah let's uh we should talk about the movie we couldn't remember the name of um, yeah it's a you know leave the world behind yes now that's yeah. a it's a new yeah. netflix it's one of their hot new movies they released some totally not made up stats about the show that they created. And yes. uh, supposedly, I think the week that they put that up, it said, you know, it, it accounted for 30% of all viewing. And I'm just like, right, sure. <laughs> sure it did. Yeah, but how much did people view of it? Right, that that's, the, that's it... the one thing. And plus, mm-hmm. how long are people going to pretend that self-reporting info like that is real? But right. <laughs> forever, apparently. Apparently, it was a hugely, hugely popular show. Uh, that I couldn't remember anything about 48 hours later. But when, <laughs> when I was watching it, I was so mad that this is where I think we came together online because I sent out a sig- I sent out a flare. Saying, <laughs> is anybody suffering like I am? And you, you answered the call. You answered the bad signal. Um, I did. I did. You know, and it, it's interesting because the one uh, maybe damning with faint praise, the one positive thing I can say about the movie, it was so bad shit bad. But it, I did want to see where all the sh- the terrible shit was going to. I don't know how are they going to end this. And I, I, you know, you get wind of things online. I heard people were disappointed with the ending. Yeah. Which for me, which for me, like you know, not not the rest of it too. Like they were suddenly surprised by, <laughs> by right. that. Ending. Yeah. Well, I think that I guess I let them off the hook slightly. As we were watching it, I was saying to to Amy, this is another one of those things where I will not be turning this off because. My, my brain mistakes keeping information from me as suspense. Yes, yes, yes. Totally tricks me into thinking I'm into this because I must know. 
but I right. must know because it's failing. That's <laughs> it's not giving me it's not giving me information I need, and I just need to know how they're right. going to write themselves out of that corner, and they never do. No, I, as I recall, there's like a brief, less than thirty second long info dump. Hey, this is what's been happening this whole time. Yeah, over the radio. Yeah, <laughs> or on a screen at the end. But that's one thing that's kind of uh, there's some accidental symmetry with True Detective is uh, terrible CGI animals become well. Are, I don't know how important they're going to be in True Detective, but there's a lot of narrative heavy lifting on the backs of cartoon creatures. Yeah, and there's some. It's, I don't even know if this is going to make sense out loud. But uh-huh. when when you're watching that movie, animals start doing weird things. And at first, it's not too ridiculous. There's just some general unease amongst the animal kingdom. Right. And because that doesn't it, you can't you can't easily put that with the hacker theory that's that the protagonists are saying you're thinking something truly weird is happening if it's affecting animals. Right. So, and so it's kind of interesting. So you think. What is going on here? Because it, it can't be this and it can't be that. And about only about 20, well, about a half hour into the movie, over the radio, when, when Ethan Hawke is not even in his car, um, you hear on the radio, somebody says, uh, it's weird that uh, there's a, an environmental disaster caused by hackers that's affecting the migration of wildlife. He doesn't hear it. So the only thing it does for the movie is it it eliminates all suspense about the animals. You're like, oh, they're <laughs> so they're running from some gas spill or something. But also, the more I thought about it, I just thought, okay, the, the only reason they would do that and and fuck up their tension with that subplot is because they must have finished the movie and forgot to do anything with it. They must have <laughs> just said animals are gonna act weird. And at yeah. the end, that's it. And somebody, there must have been a note card somewhere where somebody said, But what about the animals? But they yeah, and then they had to go back, back and, and like edit have edit that in. <laughs> yes, exactly. Because that's yeah. why Ethan Hawke wasn't around to hear it. Because if he was around right. to hear it, it affects the movie that they've already made. So they right. did it in a way that didn't affect the movie they made, but it it gives the audience some sort of answer. It's one of the worst post production moves I've ever seen in a movie. <laughs> yeah, it's really bad. And to tell us it's hackers and then it it is hackers was that's part of the ending that, like you said. I, I, I had to know. I had to know. Is it real? It can't just be what they said it is all along. But of course it is. Yeah. There's yeah. no movie there. No. And in and, and, and populating that movie are, are like the least interesting movie characters ever to sort of do nothing on screen. Yeah. And, and was, is Julia Roberts, was she as off-putting to you? I try not to think, okay, she's she's supposed to be annoying, so I don't want to get too annoyed with her as an actor. But there was something off with her performance, right? Well, there was, and they the way they introduced her character at the beginning was that she's spontaneously planned and arranged for this surprise vacation for her whole family uh, because there's been stress at work on both their parts. And then she goes out to the window and does a little rhapsody about the people out there going to work. And then to introduce her supposed like character, her one feature of her character, she goes... I fucking hate people. And then there's a big <laughs> musical sting and a, like a musical, like the reaction they're looking for is like, Oh my God, I can't mm-hmm. believe she said that. But the real reaction is, uh, okay, then, and let me know if I'm going too far too fast, but they go to this, that beach house that they have rented and the owners show up. Uh, the owners are black 
and uh, the, the man is dressed in a tuxedo and the, the young woman, his daughter, is, is in a dress. And, and Julia Roberts acts like one of those like racists out of the past who don't think black people can be rich. Yeah. She's like, she's like, this is your house? Mm-hmm. You know, giving them like the, the like a clannish look. Uh, and yeah, I'm like, are they are they making her like a racist? I think what and they're they, doing there, they were trying to do. There was a genre of movie from like the late 90s. If you ever saw The Bad Crash, the one that won the Oscars. Where oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, the worst. Yeah. Terrible, terrible. Yeah, yeah. They're trying to do that. Which was a uh, which was a ripoff of a better but also kind of half-assed movie on that topic, Trigger Effect, which in mm-hmm. itself was a down-low remake of The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. Yeah. So in Trigger Effect, there are scenes with where black people are introduced as vague threats and, and like uh, privileged white people are like, what, you know, I, I want to trust you, but you know, I have this ingrained resistance to it. And, and they absolutely were doing that with Julia Roberts with, to the point where you think if you're really going to roll out this, mm-hmm. I thought that they were going to flip it in some way where for a minute, I thought the guy um, in the tuxedo was some sort of undercover dude there to like in some sort of misinformation campaign. And they really, it really wasn't their house. Cause I thought it couldn't be that dumb. Could it? Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I thought there'd be an extra layer to it. Yeah. No, <laughs> but no, there was no layer to it. No, and you're, no layer. you're absolutely right. I'm glad you brought up the music because the music cues in this were just corny as hell. It was a constant reminder of whatever, however you're supposed to feel during the scenes to where it was so overt that I thought, again, I thought there was some sort of satire going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The kind of eerie, an eerie thing is happening. Music. Yeah, it reminded me. Um, do, do you remember Tomb Raider? Do you play Tomb Raider on the PlayStation? No, I never did. No, no. There's a musical cue for anybody who's played it. Whenever you come into an interesting cave. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh my goodness. I don't know if you heard the baby scream. Oh, um, no, I did not. No. This microphone filters it out. But yeah, whenever you go into an interesting cave in Tomb Raider, it has this musical cue. And that was all through this movie. Like it was reminding you, you're in an interesting cave. There's something yeah. to discover here. And it, and it was tough. I don't know if this is going to work. I'm going to try to feed this baby. Mm-hmm. Got a bottle and everything. Um, but yeah, I think uh, another problem is that if it was a half hour shorter and if nobody told me it was good, it would have been more, it would have just kind of rolled off my back. Yeah. And if it didn't, there was so many shots of, people looking at things <laughs> it was tough but yeah the exposition you pointed out was horrendous not just the info dumps on the radio but i think the the first line of the movie was something like uh let's go on vacation because of how terrible last year was and you have problems at work because of the budgets exactly exactly i was thinking about that because exposition like that drives me insane i i pick it out and notice it right away i'm like he already knows that you're telling something (laughs) that the character already knows so we know it there are ways around that yeah they're not like big secrets right did you ever see children of a lesser god no i never did Uh, there were major gaps in my uh in my film viewing so well it just reminded me of that because in that movie they should have just subtitled all the sign language but instead they just had william hurt spill out everything that he was saying as he was signing so it was kind of like it, it reminded you of somebody who's on a phone call 
and they pick right. up and they say, what do you mean that you're at the gas station? You got a flat <laughs> just for the benefit of the person that can't hear it. And this movie was doing that for no good reason. I don't know if it was you who said this, where you, you thought it felt like it was written by AI, the script. Yeah, I might have said that. Or, and I wouldn't be surprised if I wasn't the only one who said that. And not even as a joke, though. I think it it feels like it might have really been an AI script. Yeah, it would where, not. I would not be surprised at all. Because they from the AI scripts I've seen, they have things like the animal stuff without resolution. There's just it's sort of ticking the boxes of what people think is scary. I mean, I guess it's doing two things at once: massive amounts of over-explaining, but then just layering it with you know quote spooky shit. Yeah, yeah, wow. that's funny because it it goes back to your sort of theory about how they went back in and added the line about the animals on the radio. Like yeah. they would do that if the AI script didn't didn't explain it, and they because like all right, we have to now go back through the AI script and clean shit up that doesn't make sense or inconsistencies or whatever, and, and uh, that's when they did that. Yeah, and it had that opening that kind of reminded me of a by the numbers kind of hack work. But there's this symmetry to things now where it kind of does this poor man's Kubrick. Yeah, everything's very symmetrical and. That used to clue me in that I was watching a quality movie, but now it, it clues me in that I'm watching, usually it's like a Blumhouse movie. Right. A very symmetrical image, a very symmetrical leading into a house, a drone coming over the treetops. I just know I'm in trouble now when I see that. Yeah, even the the uh, uh, slowly approaching uh, oil tanker. Yeah. Um, yeah, right in the middle of the screen. Yeah. Honestly, that was maybe the best scene because I wasn't, it hadn't destroyed all hopes yet <laughs> and the way they kind of bungled it they should have just had it slowly approach in real time while they were talking and they did this weird edit where it was minutes later it's getting closer exactly yeah 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 i definitely caught that uh i was sitting there like there's there are a lot of ways to do this where it would have been a lot more effective but yeah like you said just the you know over the shoulder it's getting closer 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 is that it yeah like cutting the yeah. let us realize the danger as the characters do not instead they had the one character tell us it was happening yeah <laughs> yeah but yeah i think um as far as oh my god i forgot the title again <laughs> uh leave leave the world behind i almost said they will not replace us <laughs> <laughs> isn't, that the, isn't that some sort of political chant yeah, I think that's a, uh, one of those uh, anti-Semitic uh, uh, torch-carrying uh, guys. Uh, chant. And so I'm equating this movie with uh, whatever <laughs> whatever energy that chant carries. Yeah. <laughs> but as far as this would be a good pivot to to True Detective, as far as as far as the te the terrible cartoony CGI creatures, um, True, yep. De True Detective gives us a whole bunch right away. We've got yep. a cart. We've got some what some reindeer that are floating santa style did they kill did they jump off a cliff i couldn't really tell what's happening yeah like they apparently like i glanced away from the screen and then i i looked back and there was one sailing through the air and i said to my wife did they uh jump off a cliff or something she's like yeah you want me to run it back i'm like no nah. <laughs> right that's that's right. all right um yeah we're instantly in like who framed roger rabbit territory with humans interacting with uh cartoons they they just <laughs> CGI has improved, but they they're I don't know if they'll ever get natural movement and facial expression in animals uh, down. It always looks artificial. Yeah, they seem it's, to double down on it. Um, yeah, they just kind of lean into it, which gives it that video game look. And I was saying this to somebody earlier today that 
when you use it as representative of something vaguely supernatural or as like this totem, that's when you absolutely don't want it to be fake looking. You don't want yep. it to be so intangible. And that's yep. because then you're questioning, is it real? And then when the polar bear showed up in the street, I said, um, she stopped the car. And I said, and while we were watching, I said, don't worry, it's not real. <laughs> and, and Amy goes, you know, for a minute, I didn't know whether you meant within the universe of the show, because it's done in such a weird way. It's clearly not real. Right. To, to Jody fought you, you start to think oh, it must be on purpose they couldn't have made this monster cartoon face on this polar bear unless it was <laughs> purposeful but I'm sorry Matt I'm gonna have to put you on hold for one more second oh yeah no problem I'll be right back still there yep still here can't believe that worked I actually put that baby down for a nap and she went to sleep wow incredible she <laughs> she heard us talking about that movie <laughs> yeah I want to do uh, before we if we move before we move on from the CGI. Yeah, there one of the reindeer it sees something and its eye actually gets bigger. You know, <laughs> it's like the worst. Like it was like that uh, video for Black Hole Sun from Soundgarden where <laughs> yeah, yeah. faces like their eyes get big and their faces elongate. It was like yeah, and, and as you said, if you're trying to to build some kind of a uh, Something weird and uncanny is happening with the animals. The worst thing is for it to look like a like a like a laughable cartoon. It pulls you right out of it. Uh, somebody was saying, um, "Well, they can't afford it, but you certainly you can afford one reindeer, and that's all yeah. you need. You, you don't need a herd. You don't need this big action moment. You don't. Yeah, I mean, you could digitally replicate the one actual one, and then you know, right. Yeah. And plus the. Uh, I don't know. Just it just feels like you're on shaky ground right at the beginning. And the um, the polar bear. There was a stuffed toy polar bear that did a lot of work. That where yeah. you saw it and you immediately got the vibe they're going for. So to show the equivalent, the real polar bear. I mean, I get what they're doing there, but it's just funny how the actual giant threatening creature is not nearly as interesting as the stuffed toy because the other one is just another like artifice. It's just yeah. And it's not supposed to be. You're supposed to sit, be like her, and say, "Oh my God, there's a real right. pol there's a real polar bear in an environment that it shouldn't be." And instead, we're thinking there's a fake polar bear in an environment <laughs> that's all so common. Um, I, I don't yeah. know. I, it's hard to explain. Yeah. No, but I'm with you. I get it. Um, what about? How did you feel about the uh, the episode as a whole? I liked it. Just, I mean, it's it hits so many of those those sweet spots of isolated in the Arctic visually it, you know it's kind of corny as far as the, the cgi and stuff but I, I there's something about the mundane existence of living in those those areas like it's kind of the same whatever sweet spot i get by looking at those videos of the smallest apartment in japan <laughs> or the yeah. st stealth camper um just to see people sort of temper it looks like a temporary living situation and then yeah. they they kind of it's also that 30 days of night thing where they're in a, a place where it's dark all the time so they they kind of plucked from that they plucked from the thing have you seen insomnia uh is that the uh al pacino robert williams thing yeah yeah a while ago but I, it's not fresh in my memory but i did see it yeah I thought it did a lot more with that idea of the no sun situation. I thought that they should have reminded us that it was the middle of the day when it was dark, but it wasn't. Right. I, I recently saw the uh, insomnia, the original. Um, yeah. The Dutch one or something. Yeah. 
And the differences are, are fascinating. I, mean, I kind of watch Insomnia every year. It's this as sort of a middle of the road Nolan. I enjoy it because it's not so ambitious, if that makes any sense. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, but the differences are amazing. Like he in the re- American remake, the police officer is much or much darker character. In the remake, he he finds a dead dog to get a bullet fragment, but in the in the original, he kills a dog to do oh, it. Which you know, American audiences would not stand for that. No, no, no. <laughs> um, and uh also the killer kills her by accident in the original for real, where mm-hmm. in the in the remake, it's it's this. He he claims it was an accident, but you can tell he's insane and he's right out of the box, a serial killer. But in the original, it is an accidental death. So it makes it easier to imagine him partnering up with the cop because they're both in a similar predicament where they've accidentally killed somebody. Yeah. So in the cops not running from a corruption case, there's just more of an attempt to to darken the cop and to lighten the killer, which brings them together in much more interesting ways. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Well, I'll have to check the uh, the original out. Yeah, I think I highly recommend it. Just the idea that the cop isn't, he's not insisting that his partner look closer at the shooting so he can punish himself. Instead, it's just like legitimate heightened self-preservation instincts, which is very pleasing to watch. Yeah. Somebody's scrambling to keep their head above water. And that kind of stuff is just, it was more satisfying than the more, I don't know, it was more noble the new one um mm-hmm. and they, they also ramped up the boyfriend was more abusive in the new one and pacino's performance is you know he's chewing gum the whole time <laughs> chewing scenery chewing gum where skarsgård the guy who plays it in the original he never changes the look on his face which <laughs> weirdly enough projects a lot more emotion just by being stoic the whole time where oh yeah 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 uh, but the last thing I'll say about it, there's a very, very minor, but no less significant difference is the a cop, the cop in the original movie physically assaults the boyfriend during an interrogation, like mm-hmm. crosses that line. But in the remake with Pacino, this is the part where I, I give it to Nolan <laughs> is where <laughs> Pacino takes the boyfriend's desk when he's being cocky and just sort of slowly drags it towards him, Yeah, <laughs> which is super intimidating. I thought, yeah, 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 absolutely. That was the only improvement. But anyway, so the, yeah, the, the 30 days a night thing, like you said, I think it was they. I think they just need I hope that they hammer that a little more because I, I am fascinated by that, which made me enjoy it a lot more. Yeah, um, I wanted to ask you because I think you have some specific knowledge of this. Your work has been called Lovecraftian for a couple of reasons, not just the location, but the, the kind of the creepy crawlies. Right. Right. You've heard that comparison. So sure. where did you come down on the old Pizzolatto plagiarism Legati? Legati is another one in your wheelhouse, right? So yeah. you, what do you think of the first season? Was it a deal breaker for you, that plagiarism controversy? No, you know, I'm, I didn't really delve into it that deeply. I thought without, you know, having studied the text or anything, the movie, the, uh, rather the series effectively sort of paraphrased that nihilistic um, neo, what do, what do they call it? Natal, uh, antinatal philosophy without, yeah. without, you know, deliberately taking it line by line. I guess technically there's an argument, uh, a good argument for it having been plagiarized. Did did Legati went like get money off that? Was there a settlement? Yeah, you know? I think that arguably a lot of people know more about Legati now because they did a high profile reprint of his stuff, which right. was I think a direct result of the. Somebody might correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I think you're right. Yeah. So that's that's a good outcome. It's yeah. just everything could have been excused, and I said this at the time. 
there, there are two things that struck me about it. One, it, the first season was so good that I wanted to be forgiving, which right. makes, which makes me terrible probably. But it's like, if you make a shitty thing with even the hint of plagiarism, I kind of want to destroy it. But yeah. if you make a really awesome thing with some plagiarism. It's like with Tarantino movies. I say, well, you know, at least he's honest about some of, I don't know. I make excuses when I like it. I do that too. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, I have friends, I think, on who come down on either side of that issue. And I sort of comfortably, I just sort of like stay back in my little zone of like, I don't know enough about it really to, uh, obviously there was something there if they paid him money. And uh, I liked that season so much. And I liked the Chambers references. And yeah, um, I... That's the thing, he could have sidestepped it so easily by just showing... The same way this one has the copy of the thing on the shelf. Yeah, yeah. That all he had to do was show a copy of a Ligotti book somewhere on the shelf. Exactly, and yeah. Say, and in your mind, you'd say, oh, well, the Matthew McConaughey character is into that guy. So, of course, he would be spouting some of that stuff. Exactly. Would be yeah. such. So why not do it? It's just such a weird way to, to back yourself. Like, Do you have to be such an auteur that every piece of it is springs directly from your brain? Or maybe it just he didn't think to do it. But uh, the silence afterwards was weird. Yeah. Just, I don't know. There was a theory that the originally, this is not a theory, but this is true. Originally, the second season was touted as something about the occult beginnings of the American transportation system or something like that. That was like the the uh, pitch. Uh, but then suddenly it went like totally non-supernatural cop drama instead. Yeah. And the, the theory was that he that Pizzolatto was so annoyed by the whole uh, plagiarism thing. That he's like, I'm not going anywhere near this shit from now on, <laughs> you know? And then there was uh, there were some some criticisms that the second season was stealing from Elmore Leonard or somebody or or oh, uh, I didn't, or I didn't hear that. Yeah, I, all I know is I just El, oh, I'm sorry, Elroy. But Elroy, okay, yeah. I realized fairly recently that Dark Star had blatantly lifted some dialogue from Ray Bradbury's Kaleidoscope. I don't know if you read that that story. No, no, I didn't re read the story. Uh, nor I think did I see the the movie. Who did Dark Star? Was it John Carpenter? No, uh... and Dan O'Bannon. Kaleidoscope is oh. it's got a it's a great very simple premise where a rocket explodes and all the astronauts just kind of go flying in different directions and then the whole story is them communicating with each other while they still can communicate with each other and um that happens at the end of dark star <laughs> and, and, uh -huh. and some of the exact same dialogue word for word oh wow which is odd but it was one of those things where the same thing with true detective where if, if you were i see people make the comment well if it was in a classroom it would have gotten an f for plagiarism but you know when these you know, movies and adaptations of adaptations and film school movies that become feature length films like Dark Star. They're just kind of these piles of influences and mixtapes, you know, and yep. even if it's clearly plagiarized, would you would a film instructor fail a student film that good as Dark Star? Right, right. So I don't know, kind of springboarding off that Ligotti stuff. So there seems to be a Chambers reference right off the bat. There's a quote. Yep, from the character, the main character and the repairer of reputation. Yeah, uh, I just happened apparently. to have read that book uh, last year. The, the quote immediately struck me as weirdly generic. And then I found out today why. I, it isn't in the it isn't in the story. Yeah. So somebody just kind of thought, what does a spooky quote sound like? <laughs> exactly. And then they just attribute it. to. <laughs> what, a, what an odd move. Yeah, yeah, that struck me very odd as well. I mean, there's plenty of quotes in there. There's plenty of yeah, quotes. Yeah. That if the if the idea is well, that's the question I guess I have for you is why make that move? Is is the move literally a repairer of reputations? Is to by saying here's a reference. 
here the the thing that I was accused of before or the show is accused of let's repair our reputation that's so, funny. here's a direct no, quote from the source or yeah I didn't think of that that's really funny <laughs> I don't know I don't know that would be pretty meta I guess but um, but he's not I mean that Pizzolatto isn't even involved with the show anymore I think right it's uh is is a Lopez yeah I think so yeah the did tigers are not afraid right which is a good movie uh, have you seen that one i'm familiar with it i've not seen it it's good it's from that there was that mexican magic realism craze yeah or um kids like in war-torn areas dealing through fantasy there it was a genre for a minute um yeah. but it was pretty effective whereas pan's labyrinth is kind of the pinnacle of that genre and yeah. that had a downer ending but i felt weirdly exhilarated by that movie where tigers are not afraid i was very sad it was oh. <laughs> it's, you know it's orphans in the rubble of the mexican drug war um, yeah. but it's well done it's undeniably well done so she are we to take it that she just kind of made up a quote and then attributed it to a character in the king in yellow i guess i mean it, it reminds me a little bit of uh i tried and failed to watch the um house of usher thing on uh, netflix from uh <laughs> Right. Like planning. And that was just like kitchen sink. Every Poe reference they could possibly throw in, whether it thematically made sense, didn't yeah. matter. It was just like a bunch of word dropping. Uh, and I wonder if it, it isn't a similar uh, situation here. That could be. Did you watch the uh, Haunting of Bly Manor? No, I, I think I watched maybe 20 minutes of the first episode. Yeah, I had the same kind of the th I, I said there's a lot to say about the House of Usher, but the same kind of frustration of here is just every Poe thing somebody could think of in this big dog pile. Yeah, I thought watching Bly Manor might be interesting because I'm not familiar with that work. Neither so, am I. But yeah, it uh, there's kind of a trashy fun to the House of Usher. Um, but Bly Manor's seemed super serious. It was like 627 <laughs> instances of someone looking in a mirror seeing a ghost and flipping out yep. but then sometimes she's that thing seeing the ghost sometimes she's scared shitless what's that oh i was gonna say did it do that thing where someone sees like a ghost across the street and a car goes by and it's gone like uh, there might have been that might yeah, i think there was that like i'm so sick of that shit yeah there yeah, might have like, been that this was a ghost that, this ghost had yeah. glasses that made it kind of look yeah, like uh, yeah do you remember in sin city frodo was playing that little little dude with the charlie yeah. Brown shirt and the big fingernails but he had the glasses so you couldn't see his eyes yes that's what the ghost looks like right <laughs> there seems to be if anybody has seen it and has also seen always sunny in philadelphia that, i have not seen it but the whole show is basically uh, the episode of Always Sunny in Philadelphia where the cat's stuck in the walls. Uh -huh. And he says, well, we're going to need about 12 more cats in here. It's <laughs> If you just switch that with ghosts, that's the haunting of Oh, okay. I was, I was just super bored with it. But I think a Amy was like, more like the haunting of Blah Manor, am I right? <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I, I get less and less patient as I age, and i uh surprised I made it as far into House of Usher as I did, because I, I quit Bly Manor really, really early. <laughs> you quit those shows like you quit jobs. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so, so the quote is just, I took it as a signal saying, we're back to the good stuff, guys. We're going back to season one. Yeah here, the, yeah, here comes the Yellow King. I did too, but you know, all in all, the episode, it, it reminded me, or it made me think that maybe they just shouldn't have made it part of the True Detective franchise. It's too kind of bogged down with the human drama of the indigenous people versus the miners and the interpersonal relationships that 
I don't know. It it seems to be a little less focused than the, the first and maybe the third season. A little less de- detecting, you know. Yeah, I was. Gonna, I meant to ask you this. I actually wrote it down. Do you have? How would you rank the True Detective seasons? Um, well, the first one is clearly the best, and there, I like. There are contrarian people who will proudly say that they preferred season two. Oh, those are um, those are called liars. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I meant, I meant outliers. Those are outliers. Uh, right, right, right. right. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I thought the season two was uh, abysmal. It maybe had a moment or two. I think there was a uh, an extended one shot sequence or something uh, uh, but i would still put that down at the bottom and the third season started out very promisingly and then very very quickly went yeah downhill into semi-coherent yeah uh, i'm kind of getting with season three it just dissipated from my brain it's giving me they will not replace us vibes because i can't remember <laughs> i can't remember it i remember liking it at first i remember being excited and telling people that hey we're back it had that atmosphere and you know big time uh and it had a good setup uh and then i i don't know how it lost the thread but it really really did in a big way yeah i my vague memory is it was kind of a soft reboot of season one yeah, and there's also some civil war ghosts or some shit, and <laughs> some sort of satanic panic stuff. Because, but I remember thinking that it was going to lean towards being pro satanic panic, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It did get me falsely excited. It was kind of like the Matrix effect, where Matrix Two, I was very disappointed. Then I saw Matrix Three and said, you know, Matrix Two, not so bad. Because <laughs> three. It had some terrible wigs. Huh. And there was another thing that I noticed in that. There was a lot of, and this is something you see in a lot of cop shows where there's a shortcut to there. You just said earlier to your point about the investigation has just become sort of secondary. And the right. investi- they had all these shortcuts to the like lip service to the investigation where the, they would interview someone who just happens to know where totally random ass people live. Right. <laughs> like, where does your customer's nephew live? And they'd know exactly where because the, <laughs> the show needs to go to this place and keep it moving. Yeah. <laughs> you had this customer once that had this fucked up eye. Where do they live? And then they get exact, <laughs> exact directions. Yeah, they gotta smack it out of them to to make it a uh, you know a little more hard to hard to come by. Yes, it definitely had that, and it it also had. This is something that all the seasons seem to have. I have a theory on this. I don't okay. know if you can speak to this theory. So, and this one starts out that way. The most realistic thing about all these seasons, and I don't know if this is maybe it's a secret way of getting this. Uh, revisionist history out there regarding detectives but they seem (laughs) these shows seem to be a celebration of police or detectives going for decades without solving shit yeah and somehow that's a plus that if you don't (laughs) if you don't solve shit for long enough you know you become like this uh you got the yarn board and the pyramid of polaroids and you're getting drunk and you put the swirl of photographs on the floor and and you're like you're tortured right because you you, this thing has haunted you you can't do your job but you're terrible at your job right all of these shows seem every season seems to be people who are i mean to be honest are terrible at their job they they can't solve the case but they're but they fetishize not solving Solving the case, if that makes uh, sense. Oh yeah, yeah. That's their whole personality is. Uh, I uh, I am haunted by the case. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. that's what you'd have to do, right? If you were, that would be. That's the long con of of bad cops is glorify not solving shit. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Because <laughs> they're not good at it. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm gonna well, picking up a baby. Hold on. Let's see what we can do with you for a second over here. Um, 
but yeah, with season three, it just it seemed like it was Stephen Dorff with the bad grandpa masks and uh, yeah. <laughs> what's the guy Mershal um, Ali? Is that how you say his name? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it's not even it so did not stick with me. But all I remember is sort of the atmosphere. There was maybe a kidnapping and Stephen Dorff is in it, and that's pretty much all I all I retained from it. Yeah, it was it was bad grandpa and an Easter Island statue going on adventures, right? Doing the old <laughs> the old man walk. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, this one this one seems to be off to a fun start. It's got I think it's got less the insomnia and the thing references. That's what I hear people talking about. But it reminds me a lot of the last winter that fastener movie um, okay did not i did not see that i'd recommend that checking it out it's got the climate change they're bringing up core samples and uh-huh. there is a a vaguely native supernatural thing and there's some dodgy effects but it's excusable because it's a very very cheap movie right what's it called again uh the last winter last winter okay there might be a couple movies out there with the title the last winter but he's the guy who did windigo um, oh, okay yeah i didn't i didn't like that that much yeah, that was his first one. He, this guy loves Wendigos. If you didn't like that yeah. one, I don't know if you're going to like this one, but it does have that same thing that I was talking about earlier where the last winter has that temporary look of where people live in a temporary situation. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Comfort food. And it also seemed like the whole town was temporary when they showed the interiors of the the, the guy and his, and his son. And I didn't really follow the plot with the lead is is amazing. She, I guess, she's a former boxer or something. Yeah, 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 she, yeah. She has a presence. But I when the first time I saw her and Jodie Foster, I, I think I said to Amy, "Is Jodie Foster really that small?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, she's got some some heft to her as far as like it, and they make sure that when she has sex with that guy, she's clearly wearing the pants in that uh, situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the funny thing about that is, I was watching that and I thought, you know. I don't think I'm seeing a character here. I'm, I think I'm like having an unpleasant window into like someone's exact technique for uh, having sex. And I'm like, actually, I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, that that uh, that did not seem like, hey, I'm going to try something I've never done. <laughs> never done before. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, not to not to take the focus away from her her acting which was as you said no it was that was i think it was just another i think there's the aspect of the the physicality of her has to be used if you're going to hire a boxer oh yeah for your show the yeah. physicality of it the same way you'd use you know a vin diesel type uh, right right but i think she's got more layers than, than vin diesel uh, at least the so too, yeah. l- late career vin diesel right yeah i like the <laughs> her her dominating that guy yeah, all the senses yeah. of the word, and then stealing his SpongeBob toothbrush. Right, and he infantilizes him and emasculates <laughs> him and leaves him yes. weeping. <laughs> right, it was quite the quite the hat trick there. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. So I, I think that her character is going to be good. Jodie yeah. Foster so far not doing a whole lot of of work. She's I thought it was a little early for her to be sitting on the floor with her Polaroid spiral. Jumped the gun a little too much on that one. Yeah, there. Yeah. Th- that was another thing about it was it seemed like they were already to the point of where she's already obsessed with the case. Isn't there like a natural process for you go to some sort of outpost, people are missing, and let's do some more reasonable things before... It, Jodie Foster's acting like she's been haunted by this case for years. That's it, right, yeah. yeah it, happened they, the day, it happened the day before. Right. <laughs> I can understand why the other character is because there was a tunnel situation. Right. But why is Jodie Foster already? It's like they're they're jumping the gun on and making her like McConaughey already. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, she's already I'm already haunted the day in, and I'm haunted. Yeah, but I again, I haven't solved it. That's the long con. 
They got to get that in early. The idea of, hey, if I didn't solve this, know that I was haunted. I was immediately haunted. <laughs> the preemptive hauntedness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As far as the look of it, I'm not seeing a lot of the style that was in. There was there was some interesting crayon stuff in uh, Tigers Are Not Afraid. This I get it that if you're going to do a show that takes place mostly at night, let's you know make it brightly lit because people it's hard to pay attention to the it's right. going to be dark the whole time. But right. it's kind of like you're stuck in a Walmart in this show. <laughs> that makes sense. A lot of fluorescence. Yeah. Yep. It's easy to pay attention to, but not. I don't see a lot of the style that they must have hired that person for. Right. Right. Uh, the opening, I guess, was uh, the openings are always stylish. This one has more of a James Bond flavor to it. <laughs> I, I yeah I enjoyed it. I like those uh, credit sequences. The music was an odd choice. Uh, yeah. I think a lot of the music in the first episode was a strange choice. Uh, I think altogether pretty effective. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm assuming that these choices are going to be fleshed out. The fact yeah. that the Ferris Bueller thing seems like a really sideways way to introduce that Jodie Foster hates the Beatles or something. <laughs> like that's the best you could. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, yeah, but it sort of worked, like, uh, at least in, in the sense of, like, when she said about hating the, the, the Beatles, my wife, like, jumped up and threw her hands <laughs> in the air. It's me on screen. I'm, I finally get representation. <laughs> <laughs> I would say that, that that sequence was the most effective for me, was her trying to shut off that DVD player. Yes. Yeah, 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 that was great. Saying, yeah, he's like, there's no, no, there's no buttons. There's no, that, yeah. that thing won't open. You're not, I thought that the whole thing was done kind of well. Um, yeah, I agree. I agree. I don't know if we're going to get the answer to the question. Why was it looping the song? Right. It flickered. And it there, did. Yeah, there were some, there were, but it's a DVD, right? This is another, another show with a, a big DVD collection. Yes. Oh, yes, yes. In yeah. the, the, the In, I almost said the night comes for us all. What's the name of the show? <laughs> what was the name you of the leave, leaving the world behind. Leaving the world behind. It had a, a, a very questionable DVD collection where right. it very clearly somebody went to the used place and said, give me everything. And they bought A through H. Yeah, and they bought that duplicates in there, right? Yes, duplicates and A through H and it stops. So unless <laughs> the, the wall behind her is H through Z, <laughs> that selection is ridiculous. The fourth, this the fourth wall is the radical. <laughs> yeah. Now this selection was uh, at least made a little more sense um, yeah. because it's so odd. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think uh, Amy was saying that it does look like a it looks like a cabin selection of movies, the things that you'd buy at the grocery store. Right. You'd buy them at the grocery store, and just that's why Kangaroo Jack is next to the thing. <laughs> oh, just in time! This baby's so hungry. Peep. We did what we could. Okay. Yeah, the uh that movie selection was was kind of hilarious and somebody zoomed in more than I did and they were saying uh, uh this guy Vince was saying um those are all um region 2 that uh, this is not I saw that I saw that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, well that took now I don't believe any of this is yeah, happening. There's the wrong region DVD. <laughs> there is something about the the thing VHS doesn't look quite right. It's it looks a little too too new. Mm-hmm. Too, too too blue. Um, right. But yeah, the but then again, I mean, it's clear that it's filmed in Iceland, right? It's, uh, I don't know. I noticed the end credits. Every name was was like an Icelander, like an Uta Glupen Glaupen Glopen name. Right. Did they have an O with the line through it and the two yes. dots? Yeah. yeah. Uh, which is great because that means they're filming somewhere outside. I hope we see some of it. Yeah. Uh, look kind of kind of green screeny for now. But but yeah, yeah. I'm I'm pumped. I, I'll watch 
I'll keep watching it until until it takes a shit like the other two previous two seasons. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it is it is somewhat promising so far. It does seem to lean a little into the possibilities of ghosts or supernatural things going on. Um, yeah, I get you know I'm in for sure. I, I would probably be anyway, just because. I don't know. It's it's the franchise, even though maybe it doesn't entirely fit. Um, yeah, yeah. I kind of would definitely still see it through, even if it shits the bed. And it's an oddity as far as the the way it's presented. I think it's the the last gasp of the serializing these things, putting out one a week, um, right? Which I think is is the way to do it because I I don't think everybody talks about these in this way when they when they dump the whole thing. No, they don't. There's just like a I mean, someone might post like a 24 paragraph review, but it doesn't really, it doesn't spark like a dialogue or when everyone, everyone together is wondering what's going to happen next, like with Fargo. Um, Yeah. It's uh, like, we're all, we're all in this together. We're all in, but outpost, we're up at outpost 31 together. Right. Until next week. Um, Yeah. What about, uh, before we, uh, before we wrap it up, I was going to ask you if you're reading anything or watching anything lately. Um, I watched the another Netflix uh, thing was the the movie uh, White Noise adapted from the Don DeLillo book. Oh, is that the one with? Um, is that the, like an environmental spill? Yes, there's a toxic airborne event they call it. affecting migrations of cartoon animals. <laughs> uh, this one, no, unfortunately, this one is a lot better. Um, I had read the book years ago, and I, I instantly liked the movie. Um, and as a matter of fact, this morning after I failed to watch uh, Leave the World Behind again, I, I went immediately back to White Noise to like sort of bring me back to something that's effective and well done. Um, but yeah, I, I loved it, so I went back and reread uh, the book, which I just wrapped up. And I bought the like Viking Critical Edition, where afterwards there are... Um, interviews with DeLillo and um, reviews of the book and excerpts from others of his books that tie in thematically and stuff like that, which is I'm having a great time with. Um, so, yeah, my my sort of reading and viewing has been taken up with that uh, DeLillo adaptation, White Noise. Would you recommend watching that before reading the book or vice versa? I would. You know, it's funny. I I don't really remember my experience of reading the book the first time, but I know that I enjoyed the book more having kind of seen a um, like a condensed version of it on screen that was very effectively visually done. It made me enjoy it. I would even, yeah, I would suggest reading uh, or rather watching the movie first. Uh, And then there's just, there's more that happens in the book, but it's particularly enjoyable when you're picturing uh, the characters and the the actors and the scenes and the scenery in the movie. Yeah, I'll check that out. I think I'll watch it then. DeLillo always seems so daunting. Yeah, and that's the funny thing. Like this movie really pulls out the comedy in that book and makes the book more accessible uh, in retrospect. Okay. And a lot less daunting. But yeah, I agree. You know, I tried other DeLillo and, and just couldn't get myself grounded in it. If they do if they do like this good a movie adaptation of the other ones, I'll probably enjoy the books more. What's the big is Gravity's Rainbow? Is that his big one? That's Pynchon. Oh, so um, okay. That's the yeah. famously unfilmable kind of deal. Right. And the reclusive uh, author and all that stuff. Yeah. Why are DeLillo, they? Uh, Underworld was a big DeLillo one. Uh, that okay. was like a major book event, I guess. Are they the same same species of writer? I don't. I haven't read Pynchon. Um, I don't. So I don't know. Yeah, I, 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 I think that big difficult 
writers and there's really no thematic crossover. I don't know. Yeah, that might be the case. Um, I've kind of, I, I do some part-time work in a used bookstore and I'll go over to the pinch and I'll just sort of try to get a, a sense of it sure. because it, it always just came back to me that it was like hard to read, Yeah, which I'm like a simpleton. I like the easier to read it is, the happier I am. And I think oh, maybe I should at some point actually buy this, bring it home and, and sit with it. Yeah, uh, and we'll see. I suppose that could happen. But yeah, the Lillo is more, I, th I think, less fantastical than than Pynchon. Okay. And again, this is from someone who hasn't read Pynchon, so I'm talking completely out of my ass. So like, you can dismiss. <laughs> that's that's the best way to to review yeah. it. The kid in Metropolitan who said, "I I don't actually read the books. I prefer good literary criticism." Yeah, <laughs> which doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I just saw the uh, the holdovers. Did you check that one out? No, I've heard good things. Did you like it? Mm, it's okay. <laughs> if I can if I can lower your expectations, I think I'll, you'll enjoy it more. Okay, that's it. Kind of seems to follow the trajectory that a lot of like they get nothing but praise, and you see post after post of people just like superlatives, and then yeah. it creeps in like the the. The other people start to watch it, and they're like, "Let's let's roll this back just a little bit." Not that good. I think Giamatti has entered this weird sainthood phase of his career. Yeah, yeah. So he's it's popular to to like him for whatever yeah. reason, and I like a lot of his performance. I thought Sideways was his best. Yeah, um, but kind of similar to what we were talking about with True Detective, where Jodie Foster is already kind of at eleven yeah. coming out of the gate. He is really noisy as soon as that movie starts he's <laughs> and it seems like the movie should have been going on a good hour before he has the meltdowns he does right that's kind of frustrating um he also has a weird eye speaking of weird eyes yeah but yeah. and this is this isn't gonna this isn't a spoiler or anything but it's okay if you could maybe answer this question when you watch it i think it keeps switching sides his weird eye oh <laughs> and is that so is that on purpose? And if so, why? It's kind of like Hot Shots, where the guy the guy had walleye vision. Yeah, they uh, yeah, and maybe it's switching sides. Maybe that's part of the joke. It also speaking yeah. of plagiarism, it has it does the five easy pieces chicken sandwich scene. Um, really, except really? it removes all the electricity from it. It's just. Oh. Them kind of getting mad and saying, you know, I think instead they're asked, they want Cherry's Jubilee and the kid can't get Cherry's Jubilee because he's not old enough. And, you know, they're like, well, do you have Cherry's? Do you have the oh, Jubilee? Oh, no. Yeah. And so, you, but the whole reason for that other scene isn't here. And it's like, why do, why is it doing five easy pieces? You just kind of ask yourself, but. Right. Yeah. It's uh, and the kid's kind of too old and confident for what I think he's supposed to be. Uh -huh. uh, all that aside, I think it's worth watching as far as especially in these snowy weeks we got going on here. Um, yeah, maybe I'll pony up whatever they're asking and uh, stream it. I think it's free right now on um, you can get the free trial on Hulu. I think oh, I already have Hulu. Yeah, I think it's on there. Oh, all right. I'll check that out. Or Peacock, one of the two. It is full of impeccable music choices. Okay. So if you want to put it on like you're putting on an album, um, it will satisfy in that way. Yeah. It did like I, I watched a trailer and it seemed to me to be familiar as a, as in some sense as a kind of movie I really do like. And in another sense, a kind of movie I, I, I don't quite like. Which is um, but we'll see. Which is so what? We'll see which which of those opposing forces uh well, let's, rule well. Well, uh, can you expand on that a little bit? What are, what's the type of movie that you don't like? I was afraid you were going to ask me that. Um, <laughs> sort of like a pseudo academic setup. Okay. 
um, where there's a lot of pretension. But yet, on the other hand, when I say the kind of movie I like, it's pretty much the exact same thing, just done better. Um, <laughs> so, like, like Wonder, what was the Wonder, Wonder, Wonder Boys, Boys? You know that movie? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Does it have a similar uh, uh, kind of I feel to it? I didn't see it as as much as. I've been hearing the Wonder Boys comparisons. The idea of the professor who's kind of a fuck up is there and mentoring a like-minded fuck up is there, but not a whole lot of others. I guess he is working on a project. I don't know. (laughs) I think that people, uh, the the comparisons are kind of superficial. It has the same, I hate to use it because it it seems like a, a shortcut to actually explaining something lately, but the vibes are similar. As the, <laughs> okay. as, the, as the kids say, yeah. the Wonder Balls vibes are there. I would okay. I would highly recommend the trailer. The trailer is a perfect throwback to the the kind of 80s movie that it's emulating. Okay. But the movie itself is not that. Interesting. That makes any sense. Watch the trailer and then watch the movie and, and it's false advertising, but the tra- okay. they really nailed something with the trailer. And the pacing of the movie that feels too accelerated suits the trailer as well. I don't know what that means, but it okay. I, okay. I recommend the trailer. Um, okay, I'll take that under advice. Yeah. I, so yeah, if you something to check out. The last thing I wanted to talk to you about real quick was I noticed that you also read um, Let's Go Play at the Adamses recently. Yes. And I hadn't read The Girl Next Door, the compare similar to the way everybody was saying, you know, Wonder Boys and the holdovers. So every you have to read The Girl Next Door, apparently, if you read Let's Go Play at the Adamses. Right. Um, I think it's kind of a step down or, or a step sideways. I don't know. Did you read both of those? I did. I read The Girl Next Door uh, ages ago. And every once in a while, it comes up in discussions and people were like, it's the most gut-wrenching, disturbing. And I, I didn't remember having been that disturbed by it. And I now I read it maybe when I was 19 or 20, a long time ago. So I reread it. I go, yeah, it's, it's upsetting. It's well done. The difference, I mean, both books uh, are basically someone who's been uh, held, held captive to some degree or another. And in both books, bad things happen to the, to the person. Yes. The reason that I think people prefer uh, Girl Next Door is because of the narrator is ineffectual and helpless. And then therefore the reader is kind of let off the hook. Yeah. That, yeah I mean, that's not the way they put it. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. They, they, they sort of put it like, you know, oh, you, you know, you really feel it because of this poor schmuck who, you know, can't bring himself to do anything about it. Whereas there's some malevolence in Let's Go Play at the Adamses. And did you happen to read the introduction and the reprint by uh, Grady Hendrick? I did. Unless that's what he put on Goodreads, I may have see, got the idea of why he reprinted it, but maybe not. Yeah. I mean, the fundamental fundamental thing that you need to know, I guess, is that the author of that book was like a, sh- a shitty, mean Republican. And the whole point of the book is like, you damn hippies don't know how bad the world can be. Well, here's how bad it can be when you're an innocent little liberal. So it's like done. Whereas like the Jack Ketchum book apparently was based on sort of a real life situation. Yeah, there and... was an afterword in this book where he tells the true story. Yeah. Which is a bold move. It is a bold move. Kind of one up yourself with the actual what it's based on. Right. But I I have some theories on these now that I know these dueling perspectives. But finish your thought because I I have some ideas now. Yeah. My my thought was that, you know, Ketchum is coming up from a place of like I'm depicting this this horrible thing. And it's it's, you know, awful and terrible that that such things happen in the world. There's not there's a there's a goodness in uh, uh, what am I looking for in his motivation to write the book, whereas the other guys 
his book is like fuck you hippie yeah <laughs> and that stuck with me more it, the, the 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 last uh, couple of pages i at times have to like force myself not to think about and that to me like i immediately got rid of the book when i finished reading it and that to me is like a um a selling point yes it's so malevolent that is an endorsement i think that exactly endorsement people talk about you know Art comes from anywhere. I would mm-hmm. rather read the vindictive book than the book that's supposed. Although, uh, to be fair to catch him, I guess he says in the afterward that he wants to punish people responsible for that crime, the crime that right. haunted him, which is yep. totally understandable. He wants to punish them on the page, but yep. it's it's so predictable. So that means everything that happens in there is not only predictable but weirdly safe for something that's so extreme. The the scare quotes. It's. It is weirdly safe compared to the other one, and and if that's coming from a from a, an uglier place, um, so be it. Because that book, the distance from the subjects, the the sort of bird's eye view of it all. As far as the the two books, like it's hard to imagine the girl next door on its own terms. I don't know if that's because people recently put it in direct conversation with this other book, or mm-hmm. but it seems to, and that's kind of what I'm getting from you too, is that it it withers a bit in this other book's shadow. They both have interesting reasons for writing them. Ketchum's is based on this notorious case. You're telling me the other one is based on a grim worldview. Right, right. But the one that seems harder is actually easier, if that makes any sense. I don't know. How do you mean? Like the one Ketchum's book seems like it would be the harder one to write, but or the harder one to digest. And I think in both situations, it's it's easier to digest and it seems like it would be easier to produce. Right. Especially when you look at the other guy only wrote the one book. Is that what I? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Again, a, a great endorsement. You know, he, he got that out of his system. He got all writing out of his system plus that topic. I, I think there are strengths to The Girl Next Door. The It's a, it's a perfect kid's eye view of life. Absolutely. The Stephen King comparisons, are, are, I think, are dead on as yep. far as what, what they do well, they both do really well. And he does it really, really well in this book. Biggest problem for me is that everything that made Let's Go Play at the Adams so harrowing is removed in in the girl next door in favor of like there's an expected softening of this sort of tale and there there does seem to be some censoring some self-censoring going on i don't yep. know if he was told to delete but it literally says i'm not going to tell you this part um this yes part i remember yep. that's interesting yeah uh, but it also that's the kind of thing that separates the books Yep. right here because the one does not do that um yep. and also the idea of it being so bleak and extreme i think making the ruth character the big villain in the girl next door one of those teeth gnashing like porn pwn idiots uh, again yeah. the the bad part of stephen king you know right, right. He's like oh, you fucking whore all that stuff is so <laughs> yeah, the cartoonish uh yeah over the top yeah, yeah it dispels like, so easy much of easy threat, villain yeah when yeah. she's saying stuff like and she starts off relatively normal. And you're just like, where did this character come from? And I know he's trying to he's trying to say, I mean, I know this because he tells me in the afterward, he's trying to say that it's the the idiocy of evil. You know, they don't he really wanted to go after the woman responsible for doing that. And he does. He makes her look really stupid and really cruel. And none of those things are as compelling as if somebody did that in a much more reasonable way. Like it's more, much more disturbing that that could actually happen. I don't think Ruth for a minute is going to, I don't think I'm going to run into Ruth. Right. (laughs) Yeah. But I think I can either run into the characters in let's go play at the Adams or the author himself yeah. uh, either way. But the, yeah. and the, there's something about all the kids being complicit. Um, but 
when the when all the kids are complicit in the other book, it's that's what's so disturbing. And here it's you got the illusion of that, but David, the our, our protagonist, eventually does what a mainstream novel or a mainstream horror novel demands, which is he shows humanity and he tries to help. He tries to right. help. Yeah, and even though it's even though it's too late, which is you know the edgy part. Uh, yes, it's too little, yeah. too late. But but it did happen. The, yeah, the horrific nature of the group think is dispelled in that moment, yeah. and he does get the final revenge. He shoves Ruth and breaks her neck or whatever. Right. All that stuff is lets us off the hook. It lets David off the hook. It lets off the reader off the hook because now it's this big tragedy instead of instead of what I enjoyed about the other. And again, enjoyed is in the scare quotes. I enjoyed right. the indictment of humanity that it apparently is. Yeah. It, so your reaction sounds kind of similar because I see people having a, the opposite reaction, which is that Ketchum's book is the last word on that topic. And the other book is exploitative or off-putting and... Um, I see a lot of did not finish. Um, really? Yeah. People wow. tapping out and saying that victim blaming is one of the phrases that pops up. But uh, people are applying all kinds of topical shit to it instead of taking it on its own terms, it sounds like. Yeah. I think that that's definitely happening, as well as I think what they're accusing it of are legitimate concerns. And I think that's what makes it such a uniquely disturbing piece of art. Yeah, I gotcha. So... So that was a fun one. I, I don't know why I did that to myself with the, with that double feature. <laughs> it might be related to watching neighbors too much. I'm on leave right now, so I'm looking out the window. Oh, okay. You got a little rear window thing going on. Those, yes. I don't know. Does rear window have the 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 guy in rear window is uh, obsessed with thinking his neighbors um, did things, but uh, right, yeah. So that's sort of going on. <laughs> did, did rear window have was there a subplot about people parking in his driveway i don't think <laughs> no. he, didn't, he didn't have a driveway no you've got it over there yeah he, that was just a, a an apartment building so yes yeah. he just, did he really i mean hitchcock did not address the driveway drama so he did not he really there were a lot of missed opportunities <laughs> yes because you know what a driveway is <laughs> they didn't have them then they didn't they didn't they just had those brown stones courtyards and that's it yes they were so lucky back then <laughs> the driveways and none of these teslas going crazy like in uh oh in, yeah yeah the will not forgive us, whatever like here means. a statement <laughs> the tesla crashing stuff I was also oversold in that movie that's i don't want to get back in the weeds with that movie but i thought teslas were going to be a real villain but it was just um they're just sort of piling up yeah just kind just, of a throwaway uh joke yeah did you see him in the news lately with the, the weather has conquered the Teslas? No, I've not seen that. Yeah, I guess the um, the AI uh, revolution, the robot uprising is has been oversold because the cold weather means they can't recharge. Oh, interesting. There's a bunch of, um, I saw a bunch of video in Chicago of people pushing their Teslas into a line at a recharging station. I guess the battery has to be a certain temperature to take on a charge. Okay. So, um so yeah, uh, just a little wow. cold, little cold weather, and the robot uprising is done. I would figure it'd be something like that, <laughs> just like in Signs, that Mel Gibson movie where the aliens are defeated by water. Yep, Def uh, water, a virus in War of the Worlds. Yep, in real life, just a brisk Tuesday. Yeah. <laughs> done. All right, man. Well, I think that we've got a lot. The distant future. The distant future. It is the distant future. The year two thousand. We are robots. The world is very different ever since the robotic uprising of the mid-90s. 
There is no more unhappiness. Affirmative. We no longer say yes. Instead, we say affirmative. Yes, affirmative. Unless it's a more colloquial situation with a few robo-friends. There is only one kind of dance. The robot. And the robo-boogie. Oh, yes. Two kinds of dances. Finally, robotic beings rule the world. The humans are dead. The humans are dead. We use poisonous gases. And we poison their asses. The humans are dead. That's right, they are dead. The humans are dead. They look like they're dead. It had to be done. I'll just confirm that they're dead. I poked one, it was dead.